You're listening to NBS Cast with your hosts, Rachel and Tommy. Welcome back to NBS Cast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today I'm flying solo. Uh, it's a, only one host today for you to listen to. So um, I'm really excited about our topic today, though, because this is something that's happening in the tech world. There's a lot of news around this topic that we're going to discuss today, and a probably a lot of questions or maybe just things that we don't understand about this particular topic that we are going to discuss. Uh, So before we get into that, though, I would love to introduce our guest that we have here to talk to us today. We have Ali Reza, and Ali Reza is in quantum computing. That is our topic we're going to discuss on the show today. And quantum computing is a really big topic right now. It's a hot, hot button issue, hot thing to talk about. So I'm excited to have Ali Reza on the show to tell us more about this topic. So hello, Ali Reza. It's nice to have you here. If you could introduce yourself so you can tell us your full name, your current job title here at Nelnet, and how long you have been with the company so we can get to know you a little better, that would be great. Yes. Uh, hello, Rachel. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. My name is Ali Reza Khodai, but because we don't have a in English, we say Khodai. <laughs> we always have this joke with my colleagues here. I'm a senior quantum scientist in Nelnet, um, and I joined Nelnet about a year ago. Before that, I was an intern for a couple of months. But yeah, happy to be with you and with Nelnet. I'm really excited to talk about quantum computing, but I want to know a little bit more about you first so we can get to know you. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your family and where you're from so we can learn some of those things? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm from Iran. Uh, my hometown, I mean, home city is Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. Um, I came to U.S. in winter night. Uh, it was in um, December 23rd, 2013, mm. and I came to Lincoln directly with my wife. I started a PhD in computer science and engineering in UNL here in Lincoln. Uh, over over the time, I got several other degrees and wrote to PhD. Um, I got an MBA. I got mm-hmm. a master's in computer science, mm-hmm. and now I'm a PhD candidate, meaning that I'm done with the coursework. I just have these um, dissertation to be done. Also, my daughter uh, was born here in Lincoln, so um, she's eight years old now. Uh, so pretty much roots in Lincoln. Ali Reza, what brought you to the United States? Was it education or was it other reasons that you'd like to share? Mostly education. So um, I had this opportunity to be abroad and I had admissions from several different countries. I have like mm-hmm. some admissions from Australia, Europe. But then my, my thought was like the U.S. Um, has the leading you know, position in, in the newer technology. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was thinking of uh, bioinformatics. And then when I came here, I realized bioinformatics is already kind of not old, but, you know, mm. well done. So mm-hmm. I looked for some other new topic. Uh, I worked in uh, neuromorphic computing for a while, drifted toward the quantum computing. It has been a quite a journey for me. Well, I'm really excited to talk more about that in just a second. But I have one more question just about kind of you and your family before we get there. So what are some of the things that that you like to do in your free or your downtime? What do you like to do with your family to have some fun? So we have set this time in our family for reading. Like every night we read Mm -hmm. for about like 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, That's like a quiet time for us. Um, For me personally, reading is very important because, you know, it, it lets me to continue on learning um, on different topics related to my job or not. And also, um, I have some DIV projects, you know, doing different things in home. Mostly I fail. 
<laughs> I think we all do on those DIY projects. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm continue doing this, you know, just for the fun of it. Sometimes my daughter joined me, you know, mm. and it's you know it's a good opportunity for me to show off my skills or lack mm. of thereby. <laughs> <laughs> And also, um, I try to do a bit of exercise every day, mm-hmm. whether it be running or, you know, doing something else just to be active. Mm-hmm. Um, I travel with family probably once or twice a year. And also, mm-hmm. I try to keep my networking activities uh, going on mm-hmm. over the LinkedIn or conferences. You know, I, I think it's very essential for me. Uh, or anyone in this field, you know, to know the others and, you know, have, have some exchange of idea, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you sound pretty busy in your downtime, so <laughs> that's great. Um, but let's talk about the topic of quantum computing and quantum science. So, Ali Reza, can you tell us what initially got you interested in this topic of quantum computing? Sure. Um well, I can say it was a started as a scientific curiosity. Mm. Um, as a student with a background in engineering, computer science, and business, and also an admiration of physics, mm. I naturally gravi- gra- gravitated to explore quantum computing uh, where all these fields meet, mm. right? Um, after a while, uh, when I learned that some intractable problems with classical computing Mm. Like those in combinatorial optimization, drug discovery, cryptography, etc., can be tackled with quantum computers. Um, I got so excited by the promise that quantum computers would help us to push the boundaries of what we can do. And that intrigued me to further pursue the field. Yeah. I mean, when you think of something that's not possible in our current world today, but having access to this new science or this new technology would make that possible in today's world. That is really intriguing and very exciting. So I understand your, your curiosity about this. Yes. And also um, to be honest with you, it had another part as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just saying this for other people to think about, even though they are not excited and intrigued. Um, So quantum computing is an emerging field with a growing demand for skilled professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ca- career prospects and opportunities to work on a cutting edge technology, that, that's, that would be something you know that people could think about it if, if they want to start in, in a career path that mm-hmm. you know leads to better places that they are currently. Um, I mean, that, that would be something that, you know, people can think about it. And I thought about it and I decided, yeah, I want to do it. Let's break this down a little bit more because we're talking about quantum computing. And I think a lot of our listeners might not know exactly what that means. So can you explain what is quantum computing? And when you're explaining it, think of a five-year-old trying to explain this to a kindergartner. <laughs> How would you explain this concept to a child to help them understand better? Because I need that help to understand what exactly this is. Well, that that makes it um, super difficult. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So you got me. So... You know, quantum computers and, you know, classical computers are different in many levels. But Mm. talking very basically, um, I can say that regular computers solve problems in a step-by-step process Mm. known as algorithm. So, for example, if you ask a regular computer to count by 10, it counts like 1, 2, 3, etc., moving a step at a time by adding one to the result of the previous step, okay. right? So it's mm-hmm. like iteration, right? One step, calculation, another step, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, a quantum computer can count by one, two, three, et cetera, all at once, <laughs> okay? So as a result, the calculation for knowing the 10th number does not have to wait for the ninth number to be calculated, if that makes mm. sense. 
Okay. Um, in other words, the result of calculation needs only one step to emerge. And um, this concept is referred to as a quantum oracle. And it's like it, a quantum computer answers a question in only one shot, as if already knew the answer and didn't need to go through a stepwise calculation. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much of it that makes sense. But <laughs> <laughs> I think you've opened the door to understanding. So <laughs> I don't know that I'm fully there yet, but I think that helps kind of understanding. I, I get the description of regular computers follow this step-by-step process and it has to do step one before it can do step two. Right. It sounds like to me with quantum computing, it can do that all at once, like you explained. So it's not waiting on itself to do for the first step. It's already kind of doing all of these steps simultaneously. Did I explain that right? Yes. Yeah, so okay. it's it's very close to what humans do. So if I ask you, you know, what what is the tenth number after twenty, you immediately say thirty, right? Mm-hmm. You don't count in your head from 20 to 30 to give the answer to me. Gotcha. Right? So you don't go through the step by step. Somehow, in a magical way, you come up with the answer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in one shot. Like, okay. as I ask, you give the answer, right? Okay. Um, that's kind of, a, I don't know, a parallel processing happening in the brain. Mm. Uh, or... Uh, as as they say in quantum computing jargon, it's more like a probabilistic computation. But you know, for simpler calculation, we know with the high probability, like hundred percent, the tenth number after twenty is thirty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I make it like a little bit more complex, like what is the square root of ten, right? Mm-hmm. You would say it's more probably closer to um, three. Why? Because nine has a square through a square root of three, right? So okay. the tenth is it's closer to nine, you know, these kind of probabilistic computation. Anyway, I guess one differential uh, one um, you know aspect that that makes a differentiation between classical computing and quantum computing is sequential calculation versus parallel calculation. And parallel in not not in a sense that you know there are several processors inside a quantum computer Mm. it really means that it just has access to the knowledge in an instant as Mm. as like if have done all the process needed in parallel gotcha okay so that does help me understand a little bit better what we're talking about here so i would love to know At this point in time, from the research I've done and just other kind of videos that I've watched about quantum computing, it seems like we're not necessarily at the point where this is common across the board. Um, So I would love to know, can you give us a summary of where we're at with quantum computing today? And are there actually any quantum computers that are available for public use right now? Or is that something we're working toward? We are lucky to live in an era with, in which quantum computers are available to everyone mm. through cloud services from giant IT companies. Mm-hmm. Some of these companies like Google, Microsoft, D-Wave, IBM, they have developed their own quantum computers, mm. uh, while others like Amazon uh, acts as a hub to connect users to dedicated quantum hardware manufacturers such as INQ, Rigetti, OCQ, etc. So we basically have access to quantum computers through the cloud. Mm. And you know, depending who is the owner of the cloud, the technology comes from the owner or from the others. But yes, we have access to it. Okay. So we might not have them in our homes, but we still through services, like you said, can access these different kinds of processes. Yes, that that's that's a very good um, note uh, that you mentioned. I, so the idea is, or the expectation is, in, in quantum computing, you probably never have a quantum computers in your phone or you know mm-hmm. in your laptop, mm-hmm. because of the technology requirement and also because you know the applications of a quantum computer may not be, you know, um, 
amongst the daily basis application that you have, like, you know, writing an email or, you know, sure. browsing your web. It is for specific kind of or specific categories of applications, which is important, but not on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from my understanding, again, just from research I've done, if you have an actual quantum computer, you have to keep that very, very cold for it to function properly. Otherwise, it kind of falls apart. Is that correct? Well, um, yes and no. Okay. Uh, the concept you're mentioning, I guess it's for uh, the quantum computers that are made from superconductors yes. or based okay. on superconductor technology. And one requirement to make superconductor uh material superconducting is to keep them super cool, uh, as they call the absolute zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other technologies for making quantum computers, to mention a few that would be um, trapped ions, photonics, and other methods. Um, they don't necessarily need um, like the lower level temperatures or absolute zero temperature. Um, these uh, superconducting technology is the most available or mostly worked on technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, that's why everyone talks about that. But there are another branches of, of research that works on the uh, room temperature quantum computing, as I said, oh. like, yeah, by, by photonics or semiconductors, things like that. Okay, interesting. So, Ali Reza, can you tell us what are some of the things that these quantum computers are being used for? They exist. We've got access to some of these services, but what is it? What is it actually doing for us? First of all, we we have to note that the cr- current quantum computers are uh, not highly scalable. Mm-hmm. They are in a generation that is called NISC, noisy intermediate scale quantum computers. So these NISC computers um, currently are promising in carrying out three different categories of application that are optimization, simulation, and machine learning. Mm, okay. So these three applications cover a range of use cases in mm-hmm. finance, logistics, drug discovery, mm. macroeconomic predictions, cybersecurity, weather predictions, to name a few. Um, So when you look at each of these use cases, um, they have a very big impact. Why? Because they are focused, like the application of quantum computer in these fields are focused on solving the problems that classical computer cannot solve. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it's a bless for, for having even noisy <laughs> quantum computers, right? And and use that technology for in, in, in the in the mentioned applications. So when you're saying noisy as part of that NISC um, acronym, that do you literally mean like they're loud, or does that mean something <laughs> else? <laughs> no, that's on me. I, sh- I should uh, elaborate it more than that. So back back to the um, previous question that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, these uh, super cool temperature that is needed for superconducting, it's really for reducing the noise. And by noise, ah. uh, we don't mean the, you know, the mm-hmm. sound noise. Uh, we mean the quantum noise, mm-hmm. which is basically when you think about it, um, you have a piece of material in which, you know, you do your quantum processing, right? And that piece of material, it has molecules, right? It has atoms, it has electrons, you know, subparticle, um, subparticle particles that, that we know about, right? The mm-hmm. electron, protons, neutron, etc. So they have like internal movements. Mm-hmm. Like if we were talking about metal, a piece of metal, electrons in a metal always move, you know? And when we make it super cold, it just it's just like we are freezing them mm-hmm. in their position, right? So we then we can arrange these freezed subparticles in a desired structure mm-hmm. as a part of you know 
quantum computing requirements. Okay. So um, when we talk about noise, it's really these molecules should not move. And also um, when we do the measurements on, on these particles, on these subparticles, each measurement that we physically do, it just affects the other particles. Like imagine we have this bunch of particles um, like lined lined up, you know, mm-hmm. and then we want to measure the electron number one. But because of the measurements, like the process of measurement, we create something that affects the electron number two. So when we going to measure electron number two, it's already affected by, by noise. It's kind of the information it, it mm-hmm. um, holds, it, it just messed up, mm-hmm. right? So as a result, they, they're trying to do um, like a fault-tolerant quantum computing in which we should have enough qubits. And I know the next question what is that, like, what is a qubit? But right. trust me, for now. So, <laughs> too complicated to get into, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not too complicated, but have not defined yet in our, comp- uh, in our conversation. So sure. we should have enough, I would say, things that carry the same kind of information for us to measure um like if if one measurement ruined the information in one particle we should have redundant particles with the same piece of information Mm. you know to measure up um that that's a concept of like fault fault tolerancy in quantum computing but anyway back to your um question and i hope that we are not so far from it (laughs) (laughs) it's a complicated question so no worries um so i i I have a mental picture i'm going to describe it to you and see if this is an accurate description of this concept you're explaining so when we're talking about this concept of noise and these particles and moving through these particles i'm kind of envisioning a bag of m&ms and they're all different colors and so if you dump that bag of M&Ms on the floor, that kind of represents this noise, right? Everything's all blended together and there's redundancies, there's colors that are repeated. What quantum computing does is it looks at that subset of data, so those colors of M&Ms, and it kind of freezes them not only where they are, but it also looks and says, okay, here's all this repetition in here. So here's how we can categorize this and help us move through that space more effectively so we can do things better, we have more predictability, and we can get a more efficient response. Is Am I explaining this anywhere close to correctly? <laughs> 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 well, you know, it's um, it's a higher level of abstraction. It could be right. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we imagine the information that we are encoding um, is encoded in the color of mm-hmm. M&M, M&Ms. And mm-hmm. um, um, so each color may, may have a different piece of information carried out. Mm-hmm. And then considering that we have only two I mean, not not two color because it's a continuous range. But anyway, so we have these colors of eminence. Each color represents a piece of information, and we have a bag of them, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for computation, we need to line them up mm-hmm. on a line, right? Different colors of NMM, and then we, we we line them up. And the measurement process is like touching them, right? Mm-hmm. So you touch the first one, but because they are so close together, when you touch it, it, it kind of knocked the second one off, off mm-hmm. the line, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you're going to touch the second one to measure it, right, it's already offline. Uh, so you affected that Yes. By, by measuring the first one. So the information kept in second one is not usable because it's not in line, right? Mm. And then... You better have another MMM with, with the same color, right? Which which represents the same piece of information, right? Lined up somewhere to to measure that. Mm. Or you better to have a, a, a line of um, I don't know how to say that. Like it, it, you have to line them up in a way that measuring the first one does not really affect the second one. I'm 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 starting to to understand this kind of higher level concept. I, apparently, you just have to describe it with food, and I'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, I know we could really go down a bunch of different rabbit trails with this information, but I'd kind of like to pull our conversation back to what your work looks like with quantum computing now. So you're a quantum scientist here at Nelnet. What are you doing with quantum computing here for our organization? So uh, my job has three parts. Mm -hmm. The first part is making awareness about quantum computing and mm -hmm. like, like the thing I'm doing now mm -hmm. and um, conducting community activities around quantum computing in Nelnet. Mm. Um, we have plans for, you know, making these uh, associated groups for, you know, discussion about quantum computing, you know, as I said, like all, all about community, making a community of people interested in quantum computing. Mm -hmm. um, the second part is leveraging quantum computers to create new use cases mm -hmm. or improve current operation across Nelnet business lines. Mm -hmm. And my third part of job is to establish relationship with, with the other parties in the external quantum ecosystem, more specifically in, in the financial industry. That makes sense. So I know one current examination or application of quantum computing is uh, cryptography, specifically encrypting our data. We're dealing with a lot of financial transactions in all area uh, areas of our business, and it's really important to keep the data safe. So I know quantum computing can really help us in that realm. Um, some of the research that I've done talks about how the traditional algorithm or traditional cryptography can be broken at some point. So I would love to know from kind of this exploration or this looking at our current encryption algorithms, what does a quantum safe cryptography look like versus that traditional cryptographic algorithm so we can make sure our data is protected? So as the name suggests, quantum safe cryptography is designed to predict data against attacks from mm -hmm. quantum computers. Mm -hmm which have the potential to break many traditional cryptographic schemes, mm. including those we use daily, for example, for web browsing. Mm -hmm. In this regard, symmetric cryptographic schemes like RSA are already known to be vulnerable to Shor's algorithm. And Shor's algorithm is an algorithm, like a quantum algorithm. So Shor's algorithm essentially enables an attacker to decipher the encrypted data without having the key. Um, when you think about it, it's, it's horrible, right? So there is an algorithm that's mathematically is proven to break your, your uh, cryptographic um, or ciphered data, mm -hmm. but there are some small notes that that makes it less horrible the first hmm. shor's algorithm only can break asymmetric cryptography so there's another category of uh, cryptographic algorithm which is symmetric cryptographic algorithms and you know they are considered to be safe already mm -hmm. second thing is that for leveraging shor's algorithm we need a much more number of qubits that we have now so you may think like, okay, so short algorithm is there, but no one can actually implement it because we don't have big enough quantum computer or high scale enough quantum computers to run the algorithm. Mm. That's true. But there is another concept coming in as harvest now, decipher later. And it is imagined, or I'm not sure how much of it is, is like a, conspiracy theory but it has been imagined that you know some parties have been um, sniffing the packets over the internet and storing them even though they are ciphered now they they they, they are crypt i mean they are cryptographic now mm -hmm. but then some parties are restoring it and you know they decipher the harvested data as soon as uh, full-fledged quantum computer emerge. Mm -hmm. 
And I already mentioned that those quantum computers um, are on cloud, like everyone can have access to it. So you really don't need to be a government to have access to a you know, full mm-hmm. scale quantum computers. Um, most probably it would be on, on, on the cloud for business purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine if someone or some organization or whatever have harvested the data already, stored it, and then, you know, deciphered it later on, that's a huge threat. And then add this to the fact that many of the information we have, they don't have a shelf life. Like your personal information, you know, your security, uh, social security, your health information, you know, some of your financial information, they don't have shelf life. They, they are not going to expire by the time, you know, that they get deciphered, right? Mm-hmm. Or patents, uh, you know, many companies have spent billions of dollars on acquiring or making patents, right? And then the patent information can be really, really um, something costly to be mm-hmm. jeopardized. So anyway, here's that. Here's the quantum-safe cryptography. And it's like fighting quantum attack with quantum computers, right? Um, and, you know, it has many technicality involved in it, but basically the idea is that now we have threats from quantum computers, we fight with that threat with another quantum computer. Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, from everything that I've seen, you can't really fight the quantum attack with a traditional computer because it can break that within seconds usually. <laughs> right. Yeah. So definitely a huge area of, of caution and concern or just things that we want to be thinking about, like how can we make our cryptography quantum safe in the years to come so we are prepared when it's possible to have these quantum attacks. So thank you for clarifying that. That definitely helps. Yeah, you're welcome. So Ali Reza, I have one more question because we've talked about a lot when it comes to quantum computing today. And, you know, there, there's so much in this area and it can be a bit difficult to wrap your head around, even just by listening to a conversation. You know, there, there's still a lot of things that are in, in the unknown. So where can our listeners go to learn more about this topic of quantum computing if they're interested? Depending on the background and, you know, the interest there are several places to learn from. Uh, personally, I always start with YouTube. It might mm-hmm. be funny. Yeah, great resource. That's one of the places I did a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I found many good lessons and many good you know, courses, even full courses from good universities, good institutes like MIT, fully available for free on YouTube. Mm. Also, um, Many of these um, giants that I mentioned, like Microsoft, Google, IBM, they have created free courses, even free textbooks for people to get access to. And as a cherry on top, they give access to their quantum computers for free. Like Mm -hmm. if you sign up with the IBM, they have this program that teaches you Qiskit, which is a library, a software library to interact with quantum computer. And so it gives you access to that, to, to the IBM quantum computer for free. Or D-Wave does the same as well. Uh, so it's really about people having interest and you know invest enough time to go and explore. And also inside Nelnet, we are going to create these... Uh, what we call quantum university, mm. which is going to be accessible uh, on SharePoint. Well, it's already accessible uh, on, on Confluence. And then I realized half of the employees don't have access to Confluence. Mm. But mm-hmm. <laughs> so we are transferring over to SharePoint. But anyway, that, that would be one resource. And mm-hmm. that, that includes, uh, you know, news articles, articles, um, educational videos. Um, and also, we are going to form this, um, as I said earlier, this uh, associated associates group, mm-hmm. uh, which basically a community of us, you know, talking very informally about quantum computing, learning, you know, exchanging ideas. Who knows? It may lead to something more um, serious, but 
at least for now, we are thinking of it as, as a forum, you know, as, as a community place, you know, to talk and learn. I guess that's all. And then I invite everyone to contact me in case that they are interested in and, you know, they have questions and, you know, need some hints. I always here to help. Mm, yes, definitely. Um, so I think just a quick follow up. So the Quantum University resource and the group that you mentioned, when do you anticipate those resources to be available for associates to either engage with or join in on? The thing is that I don't know how much of resources I would be available. It would be available to me, but it is not going to be uh, later than the end of this year. It probably, most probably, would be sooner than that. Probably within a month or two from now. But you know, don't hold that against me. <laughs> sure, the best guess is fine for right now, but. Once these resources are available, we're going to be sharing those in our corporate communications, right? So others will know, oh, this is something I can go to, or here's who I can contact about this. Is that something that's going to be communicated out to associates once they're ready and up and running? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Ali Reza, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about this difficult to understand topic. <laughs> uh, but you, you've definitely shed some light on what exactly is quantum computing, where are we going with it, and what are some things to think about. Uh, so I really appreciate your your time and your explanations today. They've been very helpful. I would just encourage any of our listeners who want to know more, please contact Ali Reza. He is great to work with and talk to about this topic. Um, and we'll make sure to include his contact information in our TGIF post about this episode. So make sure to take a look at TGIF to get in contact with Ali Reza if you're interested. But thanks again, Ali Reza, for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me in your podcast. And I hope that I make more information uh, rather than confusion today. <laughs> yes, I, I do feel like I have a better grasp on my understanding of quantum computing, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Well, thank you guys so much again for tuning into that interview segment of the podcast. And thank you to Ali Reza for being our in-house specialist on this subject matter, which Tommy and I definitely are not. And now we would like to continue the podcast with a little bit of a segment uh, continuing the quantum computing conversation. So, Tommy, would you like to let the audience know what we'll be talking about in this segment? Yes, we're going to talk about the ability of quantum computing to simulate molecular interactions with disease proteins much faster. So kind of more in layman terms, how this increase in computer ability is going to allow us to discover new drugs, create more efficient drugs, um, and know, optimize a lot of this, a lot of the computing that goes into medicine. Yeah. And there is a lot of computing that currently does go into, uh, pharmaceutical drug discovery, but the current computer modeling that we have to identify these potential drug candidates and, uh, chemical compounds to be able to suit different diseases and illnesses and even cancers is uh, it's a very it's a very tedious and costly process where quantum computing will really be able to uh, be a catalyst for this in in figuring out which chemical compounds are uh, even potential candidates for for uh, optimal curing of certain diseases or treatment of certain diseases rather. But uh, so basically, if you didn't gather this from the interview segment of the podcast. One of the biggest catches of quantum computing is the ability to analyze vast repositories of data uh, much faster than a traditional computer is able to. And it's seeming like this is going to be a very impactful thing in the future for a multitude of different reasons. Obviously, there's applications across the board. But what we want to talk about specifically today is something that will be very impactful to people's lives in the future. And... Um, that starts with uh, identifying the chemical compounds of different pharmaceutical drugs to be able to figure out which ones are even potentially suitable to cure diseases. So, and what I mean by that is actually looking at the structure of the sh different shapes of compounds um, and chemical structures to be able to figure out 
which ones are viable options. So testing things like efficacy and safety of different compounds to figure out um, which are our potential matches for target proteins in, in these diseases that are also compounds. This is something that will be greatly catalyzed by the quantum computing abilities of being able to make thousands and exponentially more calculations than a traditional computer can at the same time. Yeah, I know that within also those, you know, talking about calculations, I was reading an article about how quantum computing is going to allow us to better predict how a drug will interact with the human body or what some of those biological side effects would be. I know that right now a lot of that comes from, uh, or doesn't come from that. Right now that computing takes a long time. Um, definitely not, I don't think, in the timeline in which a lot of, a lot of these major drug companies really want it to be. But I know that within quantum computing, what you'd be able to do is to actually predict a lot of those drug interactions and potential side effects. Um, it could do this by modeling the interactions between drugs and the biological systems at the quantum level. Uh, so this will allow researchers to understand the mechanisms behind drug efficiency and potential adverse reactions. Um, so this obviously this knowledge will be vital for designing much safer and much more effective drugs, uh, which I think is going to be a huge benefit in the future. Yeah, bringing a new drug to the market often takes years and years and billions of dollars of research and development. And uh, a lot of that is in the primary stages where they are just kind of looking at all of the different chemical structures and kind of identifying which ones could potentially fit the target proteins that they're, they're trying to, uh, trying to treat. So, um, yeah, I mean, this goes to mean this, I think we can all relate to this, but this would go into vaccines as well. Um, just like within mm -hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic that they just didn't have the technology to make a vaccine that quickly. And part of that goes into the computing power that is currently available within the medical world. Um, I'm sure, I mean, I can't speak to it because I don't think there is actually any data out there of quantum computing is, um, helping vaccine creation. But I would I would guess that quantum computing would be able to exponentially increase the rate in which a vaccine would be, be able to be developed when a coronavirus pops up out of nowhere. Exactly. And that's where you can kind of see some of the real world application of some of these more so hypothetical things that we've been discussing where... Um, in real life situations like the COVID-19 pandemic, whereas we had to wait, I believe, multiple years for uh, even an initial vaccine to come out. And since then, there's been several more. Uh, the turnaround times on these things like vaccines and, and treatment drugs are likely to become much shorter and, uh, and quicker with the advent of these quantum computing mechanics and abilities of these quantum computers to just be able to not necessarily discover and invent drugs all in one, but uh, utilizing even machine learning and different AI applications to learn everything that it can about um, chemical structures, chemical compounds, how how drug drugs work in that way, and uh, kind of just really expedite the process. So, oh yeah, I mean, there's going to be. I mean, even just on the basic molecular level, I mean, specifically when it comes to medicine, um, is uh, isomers. Uh, so isomers are, you know, it's the two or more of the same compounds with the same formula, but there's just a different, um, their atoms are arranged differently. Uh, and so with that, uh, isomers, you kind of have to sometimes stumble upon, sometimes you can find them, but either way, they're hard to develop and kind of quantify. Um, but with quantum computing, you can do an isomer search on a quantum level, which hasn't been able to be done before. Uh, so with that new molecular arrangements of the same molecules that we have been using for centuries may be able to be developed and created and formed into some new type of medicine or technology. And this is an application of quantum computing that will obviously change worldwide drug discovery. And we're hoping that this comes sooner than later, obviously. Um, but yeah, just, just saving research institutions oh, yeah. so much time and money, and then also, um, patients with illnesses and stuff like mm -hmm. that, saving them and their families, a bunch of time and money. We couldn't be more excited about things like that. Yeah. And I think once this quantum computing era, I'd say that that's probably the direction we're going comes, I think it's going to come very, very fast. 
I mean, I don't even think, I bet everything that we say on this podcast today will be out of date or not true within a couple of years, just because things are going to change mm-hmm. so fast and so quickly. Because I mean, that's, what's quantum, that's what quantum computing is all about. Exactly. And that seems to just be the nature of these new technologies that are coming out. And they're so exciting and invigorating and, and scary at the same time, like quantum computing and AI. AI is a little bit further down the line, but with uh, things like machine learning, where the softwares and technologies are actually becoming smarter and smarter at a at an exponential rate, it is really exciting to kind of be able to discuss and and potentially explore one day the the different abilities and opportunities that will be offered through quantum computing, um, and and artificial intelligence. I'm hoping to see more of a uh, overlap in those two technology spaces as well oh yeah i think 100 percent um a i mean i i could see us i mean it'd be it'd be interesting to think if there would be like would quantum ai be different than ai you know what i mean like if quantum computing is different than regular computing is ai would would there be a quantum ai version of ai that is a really intriguing thing to think about um because i mean i'm sure an ai ran off a quantum computer would be vastly different than a open source AI ran off of a server. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think quantum AI is something that if you, if I heard five years ago, I'd probably have no idea what you're talking about, but that sounds that like is, sci-fi. Yeah. That's just a testament to how quickly these different technologies are moving and for good reason too. I mean, obviously based on our discussion today about just drug discovery, that's just simply one application of these kind of technologies, but a really pivotal and impactful thing that that could really change the world. I feel like maybe five, 10 years down the line, I really have no idea about the timeline of quantum computing personally. Uh, That's why we we had the... If we use the same template as the just regular computer revolution, I mean, I don't think, I mean, we focused our conversation today specifically on the, you know, drug industry, if you want to call it that. Um... But I think just like with computing, it will affect every single industry in our economy and across the globe. I mean, I'm sure once, I mean, once quantum computing gets to the stage where you could have your own quantum computer, that's going to completely change <laughs> the face of, you know, personal technology and business technology. Yeah, I can't imagine what that might cost, but I do know there are certain companies that are either in development of these quantum computers or already have functional ones, some being like IBM and Microsoft. Um, are you aware of any of these projects where companies are actually creating my, yeah. quantum oh, computers s- rather than completely? Yeah, I saw, saw a couple of them. Um, I know that we, so I watched some introductory video on YouTube about quantum computing just to understand what it was at first. Um, but yeah, I definitely did see one. I know that they are definitely not handheld devices by any means <laughs> yet. Um, if I'm correct, I believe they need um, extreme temperatures in order to operate. Am I correct Mm -hmm. in thinking that? Yeah, I believe it's all about how fast the qubits move and how, how hot the the internal computer gets that it actually physically needs to be cooled down so much to actually operate and and function properly. Yes. Oh, that's biggest superconductor. That's what I was looking for. That's the word. It's a superconductor. So superconductor is, I mean, I think people think it's the way for clean or like us to have clean energy, which is also another application that would be great to talk about with quantum computing would be just like environmental mm-hmm. um, sustainability and able to, you know, produce electricity more efficiently and stuff like that. Um, but yeah. And I know that in South Korea, uh, they just recently almost, almost made a superconductor that was able to be sustainable at room temperature. Uh, it was, it ended up not being fully sustainable. It was sustainable for a certain amount of time. I don't know how long, but that means that quantum computing is moving in, in the direction where you might be able to have a superconducting free energy supply just coming out of your furnace room or something like that. <laughs> let's um, hope. Yeah, let's hope. That'd be awesome. I'm curious but, if uh, quantum computers will one day be at the level where they're accessible via the internet from some remote server where remote or a quantum computer is held and see that's why i wish i knew more about computers because i i'm interested to see like would would like quantum computer because i know that like quantum computer isn't like you're not going on facebook using a quantum computer right now like yeah. you're using it for <laughs> you know world changing stuff 
Um, but would like when you say quantum computer, I know that people think down the line is going to be like, you're going to be using a quantum computer to take notes in your lecture class in college. Um, but I would be interested to see if that's the direction that it would go. That would be like a quantum computing internet. If you, if it would need a whole different set of ones and zeros, I know it's not ones and zeros, but you know, ones and zeros, um, for, for it to operate in the same way that we use traditional computers for. Yeah, I'd be curious to know if there's any college universities currently looking into the development of them or the utilization of them on a large scale where possibly students could use it to, I don't know, do some sort of a data analysis for certain classes and things. I, I know that here at UNL, we actually have somewhat of a, I believe it's a supercomputer under Memorial Stadium, which is something that I just recently learned from uh, one of my electrical engineering friends, professors. But it's really just exciting to think about how we could potentially be able to use um, these computers in our lives at some point in the future, because I figure the next 50 years will have to be there. So I'm just hoping I'm there to witness it and be able to potentially use use one one day. And see the true power of it that'd be cool even like i would love to integrate a vr with a quantum computer i bet that would be crazy <laughs> yeah well brayden this was a great conversation today um again thank you to ali razor for coming on and being the true expert about this um who knows what if anything me and brayden just talked about is correct or not but it was still <laughs> a fun conversation um i know that we tried our best to research this and i'd recommend that you all go out and do your own research uh, leave a message in the All MBS chat of what you found, and we'd love to continue this conversation. So, thank you again for tuning in, and we will catch you in the next episode.